going, Charisse? Pretty good. It's a holiday in Hong Kong. Did you know? Uh, no, because I don't keep track of holidays. But thanks for uh, showing up at the office bright and early. No, you too. know, that's, that's not why I mentioned it. It's actually a perk of flexible work hours is that it's nice to work on public holidays because that's when everyone else is on the street. Uh, we love our jobs too much, I think. Do you think like I've been drinking the Kool-Aid too much? So like I I see it that way where I'm like, yeah, it's great that I'm here on a public holiday. I mean, don't you get excited about changing the world? Don't answer that. Don't answer that. Um, <laughs> no, but first and foremost, all right, Therese, update me on your happenings last week with all the Art Basel stuff. Well, I mean, there was personal stuff and work stuff. Personally, in Hong Kong for the last week, which is known as Art Week, apparently, Art week. everybody... Nice. Everybody goes a bit nuts. There's like multiple events each day and each night. And it's like, you don't really sleep for a week. And it seems everyone that I talk to says, why can't Hong Kong just spread things out instead of grouping things all together? And the argument is like, oh, but people fly over. So they want to group things all together. But like, can't people fly over just more frequently? I don't know. Yeah. Um, it's already gone better of, though. Yeah. People have definitely made it a priority to come to Hong Kong now. Like more and more people come every year. Somehow like Art Basel, Art Central, all the galleries haven't gotten that memo, right? Because they still do all of their art events in the same week. Um, but in terms of work things, Elf and I were at the J01 gallery space all week talking to a whole bunch of different people. And I think the thing that sticks out to me the most is like, this is the most intense like collaboration Elf and I have done together, but it was good. Nice. I think it was good. Like, I think we bonded through having to spend so much time together. If people haven't seen it, it was like this glass enclosure that was sort of a pop-up radio station. It looked cool. It's though. so interesting Yo, that room because cool. it's, yeah, the t-shirt was cool. The interesting about that room, it's, it's like public private. You can't hear what's going on outside and they can't hear you. Like the soundproofing is actually quite good, but they can see you and you can see outside. Yeah. It's a bit strange. That's cool. But my, my takeaway is that I enjoyed working with Elf. Elf, if you hear this, shout out to you. Of course he's going to hear it. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> on my end, yeah. I was also engaging in some talks, some discussions. So yeah. I, I was in Sao Paulo for this Nike on air event. And it was the second time in Brazil. The first time was four years ago at the World Cup. So it was actually really interesting to come back four years later and see how things have changed. Four years ago, I also spent a lot of time with my friend Ricardo and uh, Jaime from Sneakers BR, which is a sneaker, I guess, media company now because they have like a website, they have like a print publication, they have like a YouTube channel, etc. So it's just good to see how things are progressing there. And like, honestly, the event was like crazy. There's so many people there. And our talk was myself, um, Nicole Fung from Miss Bish slash that food cray, who in slash your wife, slash my wife, who in full transparency is my wife and Pedro from Piet, which is a fashion brand based out of Sao Paulo. So our, our talk was the only one that was like sold out, which was cool, but you could tell That's that cool. like, People there were genuinely very excited. And I, I think there's a really interesting takeaway from it all because like it's not very often you get to participate in a nascent sort of culture and just seeing 
it grow in Brazil and like the way they've interpreted mm-hmm. it. And, you know, obviously music is a big part of Latin American culture. Like that was obviously a very strong component of it. And, you know, at the event itself, there was definitely these sort of subgroups of people that were attending. It was like, you know, the kids that were just getting into streetwear. It was like the OGs that were, <laughs> I guess is sort of a definitive way of looking at it, but like people that might, match their sneakers with the shirt they wear, with the hat they wear. And then you have people from the music scene. So it's like all very well represented, all coming together. That's so cool. That's cool. Yeah. And then I'm actually currently recording from Lima in Peru. Yes, Lima, Peru. And that place, this place is awesome. I mean, I came in not really knowing what to expect, but just in general, like the city's amazing. Food has been really good. Are you guys going hiking? No, no hiking. We're going, well. I think Peru is that place where there's like a. Um, tomorrow we're going to. There's this. Um, there's this campsite on the face of a cliff in Peru. I oh, think. really? That sounds pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's gotten a lot of, or maybe not, maybe just things that I've seen. It's yeah. been on social media, but it does genuinely look really amazing. So it's like a campsite that's essentially attached to the side of a cliff and. You you hike there and you get there, I think, at nighttime. And then you like wake up and it's like sunset over oh, apparently crazy. amazing scenery. It seems pretty crazy. I would do it. So before we jump into the topics today, there's two things that I want to talk about very quickly, like almost in passing. And one of them is a small tip to travelers. And it's, okay. it's not going to happen. But I would love it if people wouldn't crowd around the luggage belt. Because it makes absolutely no sense <laughs> when everyone's crowded around because you can't get in. This is just like your pet peeve corner this is my pet now. Peeve, pet peeve. So it's very, it's difficult. I mean, you go in there, everyone's crowded around. So if you take your luggage off, like there's nowhere for you to set it down. You risk like hitting somebody, right? Is there a line around the luggage belt there's, at whatever airport you were most recently at? No, like, a, to, like a line no, on the ground. Wasn't. But if you go to any any airport in the world, whether it's Hong Kong, whether it's... Sao I actually Paulo. don't think it's that bad in Hong Kong. Uh, I don't know. Maybe because people come through at different times because like it's easy to go through immigration, but like... Oh, you know what? I also fly a lot of red eyes. So I might be at the airport at weirder times. Yeah. That's that's one thing. Okay. Okay. Eugene's pet peeve. Everyone stand back from the luggage belt. Yes, please. Second one, which I think is really interesting, is that living in Hong Kong, living in a first world country... But just being aware of the general sort of happenings across the world in terms of text involvement, you kind of like hear these murmurs of like, oh, Google's trying to make a more affordable notebook or Huawei is trying to build cheaper cell phones. And it's interesting because like you always think about like, oh, I don't I don't really relate to that. But when you're like traveling through South America, Central America, you kind of understand like the the massive tier that this represents, you know, like for the regular user. Oh, I see what you mean. So now. like you're seeing, I see what you mean now. You're seeing people's accessibility to tech take shape, not in an iPhone 10, right? It yeah, might be like yeah, a mid tier yeah. phone, but you also look at what positioning like a Hyundai has carved out for itself. Like that's literally the most popular car in Peru. It seems. I, I believe that. Yeah. So I think that's just one thing that, is always really valuable traveling is... I like that. That's eye-opening. I mean, it's not revelational, but it's just like interesting to understand like people are entering 
tech under these, I think conditions is the wrong word. This is the premise in which they engage with technology. I think it's important that you get to see that because we do talk a lot about tech on like all kinds, the whole spectrum, but it doesn't really, there are, like you said, there are parts of it that don't really relate to us on either end, right? Like the extreme and that we cannot afford. And then the other end, that's like all about accessibility. And by traveling, you get to see, well, that side of the spectrum, the yeah. accessible side. Yeah, totally. That's cool. So should we get into it? Wait, I had an update too, because I want to mention it later. So I just wanted to shout out Eric Z for tweeting about this cognitive bias cheat sheet. Oh, I haven't gone through it yet. So I read that article, but there's links to all of the different kinds of biases. So I haven't done that yet. Like I haven't gone into further education on biases, but that article is quite good because it categorizes them under four main categories. And those are quite easy to remember. And I just, I thought this was really good. And he also framed it as like something people who do what we do, like talking head podcasts should look into. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna check it out. I think I put it on Instapaper. I need to double check. And if not, you'll yeah, share yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I'll share it. Let's jump into it. You yes. know, you kind of faked me out here because I'm looking at our sheet and you have two topics, but yeah. you told me you're only doing one. Correct. So I had a little bit of trouble deciding what topic to discuss today. The original one was Fortnite, but I was like, honestly, it's it feels weird for me to talk about it. Like I could do a better job talking about it had I played the game and like, I haven't had time to play it, which is why the reason, didn't the reason it. I asked you last night to confirm with me beforehand is because I was going to try to get in like 10 minutes of playing it before we recorded. If let's, you picked let's Fortnite. Let's return to it at a different okay. point in time. All Anyways, right. Tabled. Um, well, yeah, Fortnite actually was less about the gameplay. It's more about the societal ramifications of like kids you know, developing us of uh, a greater sense of self-esteem, whatever it may be. Maybe but, we'll revisit this. So my topic this week is really, should we be outraged by copycat tech design? This was inspired by an article I read on The Verge. To be fair to The Verge, you made up that title. Like, should we be outraged by copycat tech design is not The Verge's title. Theirs is essentially just a Huawei AirPod review. Correct. And I was just sort of editorializing it. Thank you for that. Thanks for keeping me straight. (laughs) It just sounded, you know, like you attributed it to The Verge. This is so random to like frame it around earbuds, but Huawei, Chinese company, dropped a very AirPod-esque set of wireless earbuds called FreeBuds. Aesthetically look quite similar to AirPods, which is Apple's original sort of offering in that space, which I think ultimately... And this is my bias, I guess. This is maybe framing it a certain way, but I think it's one of the best inventions from Apple the last five years, right? Oh, this is your subjective opinion. Yeah. I think a lot of people genuinely think AirPods are amazing. There are people who don't. We have asked our Slack community this. Yeah. But (laughs) to continue on, the case, the charging case is a little bit larger, but there is a lot of the same functionality. There's a black version available. They're also cheaper than I hear AirPods. the battery life is better. There's a little bit of like finesse that's missing. There's like, there's a lot, this is like this massive Huawei branding on the side. And there's these weird metal contact points quite close to where you put them in your ears. Cause that's well, obviously how you charge them. We also don't know how they sound. Yeah, because to be the honest. Rev- 
if you're going to get AirPods, I don't think sound is a big factor. I mean, they have to sound at least as good as the AirPods, right? Like the free buds. But I, I think people just use those out of convenience, no? You don't want to buy new earbuds, which is why you just use them. Okay, sure. Anyway, continue. Anyways. Just just the full picture is that we have no information on the sound quality. Yes. What I find interesting, and I think this comment sums it up in the article, is like someone mentioned, typically these companies can only copy the easy stuff, not the kind of stuff that takes lots of expertise and years of expensive R&D. And someone replied, agreed. It'll be interesting to know if Huawei's earbuds have features like pausing when removing one earbud from your ear, the ability to track a missing earbud, touch controls for pausing and skipping. And obviously, one thing it won't have is like the clear connectivity between Apple products that AirPods offers. But he does say it's kind of interesting to see how Android manufacturers are copying a lot of Apple's design traits, whether it's the notch, the aesthetic, whatever, that's gone on for a while. But the underlying thing is that Android phone makers are really in a business of copying things. And it's kind of interesting because like as a consumer, what difference does it make if you're using a phone that mimics being an iPhone when it's not an iPhone? And like, I think what's interesting is that Android has traditionally, this is so weird because it kind of referenced back to what I mentioned at the very beginning. It's like a lot of these things, and especially Android has traditionally been for a mid-tier and lower user. I mean, there's high-end Android phones, but in general, it's more of uh, an accessible product. So this sort of opens up this But there next... are people with means who do, by volition, choose Android. Yes, that I don't deny. It's, it, it is not just for accessibility. Yeah. yeah. Correct. So this kind of leads me to my next point is that given the limited number of tech brands out there that offer mobile phones and just tech products in general, how important is brand now currently in that space? Is it important to have the right phone? Or are we getting to a point now where like it's pretty binary? It's like Hmm. either you have an iPhone or you don't. And if you don't, that's also okay because like Nobody even cares because the text I think there. nobody really cares. I think the, that era of, you know, Apple or PC, remember those ads? Hello, I'm a Mac. And I'm a PC. <laughs> I think that era is kind of over. I think in, in my experience, the people who choose Android choose it for functionality reasons. Yeah. And also like, like you said, like if they don't need that continuity, you know, if they're not using any other Apple products in their life, they don't have that persuasion. To me, I would see as boiling down to functionality over branding. But at the same time, definitely a lot of people do still buy iPhones slash AirPods, et cetera, for the branding reasons. Which I think it's it enters this weird space because are you just basically having these different marketing subsets where basically if you're buying an iPhone, it's because the people you're hanging around will recognize that it's an iPhone. And then the fact is like for a lot of people like maybe can't afford an iPhone, it's in a slightly different bracket. Yeah, I've always been sort of confused. And this is me trying to understand like when you buy a phone with a notch that's on an iPhone 10, what are you communicating to your peers? And I think this is, this is going to make me sound so tone deaf. Not necessarily an inherent designed trait that 
brings greater value in terms of performance. It's purely an aesthetical thing. At least I can justify Huawei if they bring in technology that builds upon the AirPods and makes for a better product. So that's like kind yeah, of something- the, the difference that is currently being carved out. It's like one's a performance upgrade and one is an aesthetical knockoff. Yes. Yes. So I wasn't sure where you were taking this conversation on a larger level, but I do think that while the FreeBuds are a copy of the AirPods, and I think Huawei would admit that if you like nail them down on it, there are some things that they're trying to do better, right? Which is why I mentioned the battery life thing. Huawei says their battery life is like double that of the AirPods. And if that's the case, then there's that technical advantage, right? Like a functionality advantage, even though the aesthetic is a copy. This is one thing that's popped up too, is that the future of electronics as we know it is increasingly moving away from brand. And a good example of that is if you go on Amazon, do a search for wireless earbuds and so many options come up. You're doing it right now, right? Yep. I'm doing it right now. Just Google like Bluetooth earbuds and so many unknown brands come up that are probably just the same thing. Like this is what's interesting is that like, are we really just in this massive bifurcation where it's like either it works or it's branded and there is no sort of option in between that. Because I don't like, for example, you know, Huawei actually has done a pretty amazing job on the technological front with their phones, like like Leica partnerships. I think one of their new flagship phones has like some crazy zoom on it. I don't know the exact specs, but it's like, it's interesting to see what that's going to mean down the line. Like, I mean, you've known me like for a while and like for the longest time, I was like a devout PC slash Android user. Yep. Now it's like, honestly, I don't even really care because they all, all phones now are generally of a certain level where they all work quite well. Yes. So it doesn't matter. Like you could go to Android tomorrow even though you're an Apple user and it, you'll get used to it. I don't think of it as making a functional sacrifice. Yeah. Like, I don't think that I'm taking a hit in terms of like camera or battery life. In fact, I'm probably improving in some of those regards over my iPhone. Yeah. It is interesting because I do understand like from a function point, everything that's not Apple actually has a bit of an advantage because they're not one company. Android has the advantage of being many, many companies and being able to build on each other's technology and improvements, right? Uh, like it's just yes a case no, of like, it's just a case of there's more of them. Yeah. So even the copycat is just easier, right? Like so you can see how I don't know, you you can see how someone's battery was extended and then just copy that and improve on it, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but Apple is sole proprietorship. Yeah, no. So I guess where I was trying to get with this is that in the age of a quest for individualism, what does it mean when we are openly supportive of things being copied? Which I think is like what's interesting about the general sentiment around stuff that's popping up. Like Apple 10 notches being copied, AirPods being copied. like, And we're generally becoming more and more okay with it. And like, does that mean that at some point in time, like the brand around mobile devices will not cease to exist, but it'll certainly be less important, less relevant. Because I think that's what I'm trying to get at right now is like, 
where where are we going to find cuz everyone's looking for that sense of identity and if mobile phones don't offer it even though it's such a critical part of our lives what are the next frontiers mm, i mean i don't think your physical device is that important to your identity it's your online it's- digital persona that's where your identity comes through so do you think it comes down opinion. to the ability to create with those tools to go back to the copycat thing i think even though i'm not outraged by what huawei's doing i still know that it came first from apple there's still like a point of origin and that does give them credit to a degree it would be interesting to see huawei make a product that in terms of design like sorry in terms of aesthetic design not functionality design is unique and appealing on its own and wasn't a direct copy from anything there there are people that are going to come out and say that oh there's so many innovations that have been on android and samsung devices before but i'm speaking not but i'm not speaking about functions in this point right i am speaking about aesthetics like 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 the white sheen you know like that the white shiny material on your AirPods case, like a decision like that, which is not a tech innovation of any kind, right? Or like the way Apple products are packaged, you know, like they're very clever about how you unbox the thing and it it making sense, right? So let's see Huawei do that better on its own and not be a copy. The one takeaway from this all, and I think it reverts back to that comment, is that it's not difficult to copy something but it's often the superficial things that are easy to copy mm. the issue does become if you're constantly copying something you don't have your own identity and your own identity arguably is what defines a brand so it's like what is huawei's iconic design language you tell me Sharice, what is it i don't know exactly like even samsung maybe to a degree has a bit more of a design language like I mean, when I think of Samsung, I think of sort of the rounded corners. Now, lately, it's been like the sort of edge-to-edge bezel. And also the color. It's often not white like the iPhone yeah, is. Yeah. So like, I think that does make a good point. Because when we reach a point of saturation where all tech is equally good, where it, it's no longer like who has the best camera, battery life, screen, etc., then it will boil back down to branding again. Yeah. Like, I think we're kind of in the middle where we're not quite there yet, right? We're still in a in the middle stage where it is a bit of a tech race. But eventually when things level out, it will be like, oh, well, Huawei has no differentiation when it comes to what, what you're saying, its own design language. That is interesting. Let me ask you this. What is the difference? What is the value of being the innovator? And what is the value of being the person that's second? Because I think that, Currently, both, I guess it's not a zero-sum game, right? I think you mentioned this actually in the in one of the briefing intros, right? Wasn't that what last... Um, did I use theory. the phrase zero-sum game? No, but it's game oh, theory. I did. Yeah. Oh, that was in yesterday's. Yes. Yeah, so, game theory. Yeah, like I don't... It's definitely not like a zero-sum game when it comes to tech because tech is very much defined by your disposable income. So Huawei will always service someone who can't afford... AirPods because they're 20 euros cheaper or 20 bucks cheaper. Right. It's kind of not a bad thing. I don't know if that's the right way of looking at it, but like, you know, you're you're providing an opportunity for someone who otherwise couldn't afford AirPods. 
I don't know about the legality of this, if there is anything happening here that is breaking patent laws, but disregarding that, I don't really see a problem. Because we've been talking, you know, before this recording, we were talking about accessibility, Yeah. right? And by providing a version of the AirPods for 20 euros less, it's more accessible. Yeah, exactly. I don't think we can be upset about that. No. I don't think so. Especially when it's a performance-driven product. You know, like AirPods, like in some ways are a performance-driven product. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're less of like a fashion mm-hmm. product. There are fashion mm-hmm. elements, but I think overall you're buying it for the performance capabilities and the use case for it. On a side note, which is not related to most of this conversation, is I don't think I can convert to wireless earbuds. I still have not been able to make that leap. Yes, I've tried them. I just don't, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm such a dinosaur. It's like, I like my wired earphones. I like being physically connected to my phone and my computer for whatever bizarre reason. Um, I'm probably just resisting change. This is a, a total aside as well, but I was watching uh, a football match like on mm-hmm. TV. And you know, a lot of times you have people mm-hmm. walk out of the team coach, like the bus. And they often have like music playing, like the individual players. And it was interesting because almost all the players had corded ear. Or maybe they're like me and they just prefer them. And maybe it's just because it's in Brazil. Maybe like they don't make as much. I don't know. But like they, there were a lot of like cords. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. There were very few sets of Beats headphones, like over the ear cans. And a lot of just like what looked like Apple earbuds okay but part of what you did say earlier is that if you go wireless you're giving up some degree of sound quality and that's just the truth that that's they haven't worked out a technical way to get around that yet and so maybe those football players just appreciate better sound quality i mean you also don't listen to music so it's so funny that you you know, would want to talk about this subject because your use case is like just phone calls. Okay, so for my topic today, I wrote all my notes separately because I wound up writing quite a lot and I guess I shouldn't care about how much space I use up in the Google document. But ever since you told me that our previous document was like 250 pages, I've become like self-conscious of how much I write in these overviews. My topic today is the problem with the New York Times opinion editorial section. Were you aware that there was controversy over the past? Yep, I was aware. Over the past couple of months even? Oh, maybe not months, but I think just in general. I think it's gotten to the point where op-eds have just been sort of like a way for people to be very self-promotional and newspapers obviously get free content. So the article that today's topic was inspired by is from the Vox. It's called The Real Problem with the New York Times op-ed page. It's not honest about U.S. conservatism. And it does an overview of the history of the New York Times op-ed section and the recent events and then goes into this whole thing about what true conservatism is vs. Trumpism. I'm not here to wade into the conservatism side 
of this article. And I do want to talk mainly about the opinion page. And part of that will be political, but I don't think it's the main focus. Just to give a light overview on the NYT editorial section, James Bennett, who was previously an editor at The Atlantic, took up leadership of the op-eds at The New York Times in March 2016. Ever since then, it's been kind of constantly waging battles with NYT readers. Those are the people who, like, loyal NYT readers are the people who are mostly giving feedback that they are not happy with the overall quality of the opinion pieces. So, for example, some of these arguments have been about a columnist, Barry Weiss, linking to a fake Twitter account as her only evidence in an argument that she makes. The hiring and then subsequent firing of this woman named Quinn Norton, who turns out to have openly stated that she is friends with Nazis. And also the recent hiring of this man, Brett Stevens, who doesn't believe in climate change. So that's a quick survey of some of the things that have happened so far. The thing that I'm interested in asking you about is what does diversity of opinion really look like? Like, what does that yes, mean to you? This is really fascinating because for me, I I think that as much as, okay, how do I put this? There, there's a few different ways I, I look at this. Number one, the New York Times, The Economist, all these sort of high-end publications, I call them high-end because they generally are sort of positioned at the upper echelon of publications, right? You have like tabloids, blah, blah, at the bottom, and then you have New York Times, Economist, Wall Street Journal. And I think as one of those readers, you expect to be associated with a certain type of intelligence, a certain type of discourse, right? That's one way of looking at that. So when you let these op-eds into the mix and these people that are contributing into the mix, it really brings down your sort of, your value, right? As a quote-unquote New York Times. It's so interesting though, because... Something that I think has happened is a bifurcation of the times and where you think of the news separately from the opinion section because there's no other way to wrap your mind around what's happening. Because literally people in the opinion pages are contradicting the editorial, like the actual reporting that is happening on the news side. Like for example, the climate change stuff, the news does a great job actually of charting what's happening in climate change and carbon emissions. They have a whole, you know, staff of people working on that. And yet they have Brett Stevens in the opinions page saying that it's not real. So yeah. it, it's such a strange juxtaposition that's happening right now with the paper. Another point I want to add too is that by virtue of giving someone a voice, you're, you've already sort of editorialized mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the actual content at hand. And I think this is something that not enough people think about. And I think we also have to come to terms with it as well. Yeah. And making. Yeah. It's kind of like, as much as you think you're neutral, the minute that I'm providing you a platform, it's not neutral because I've, I've allowed you to speak. Right. Which is kind of interesting. Like it's maybe superficially, like people would not necessarily recognize that, but if you dig a little bit deeper, that's the reality of it. Yeah. So the founder of the New York times, this is a reference I found I forget if it was from Vox or another article, but the founder of the New York Times said that he hoped opinion pages would allow for intelligent discussion from all shades of opinion. But you are right that it's that question of, well, Nazis have their opinions. Do we give them air? 
And once you decide, oh, we're going to give all people room for their opinions and you put Nazis on the page, like for example, right, then you are validating that in a way, even though your argument is like, I want to give airtime to everyone just by give by choosing to give airtime to that particular opinion you're validating it and i think that's dangerous and also so one thing that bennett is saying is that like the reason he's hired barry weiss quinn norton brett stevens is for a greater diversity of opinion but the author of the vox column david roberts says it's actually not true diversity because as of now, there's still no Muslim writer, Arab American writer, Latinx writers. Like I could go on. There's a whole bunch of people from different backgrounds and life histories and experiences that are not represented. And even though like Barry Weiss, Brett Stevens, like maybe they say controversial things, they don't actually come, like the columnists all come from basically the same general life history. When it comes to difference of opinion do you feel better having seen someone else's opinion or read someone else's opinion even if you think it's outlandish doesn't sort of align with your personal thoughts or is there a place where it's like a range where it's like if it falls within this range then it's what you would say acceptable so like you know what if something's like truly truly outlandish like okay it's like an argument about the earth being flat, then yeah, obviously that's that's something I would 100% dismiss. But if it's something that, you know, it's someone that's against or for gun regulation, you know, and it's like, okay, you know what, I'm on either side, but I will, I will want to hear it out. So to answer your question, which is not even framed in the context of the New York Times opinion section, yes, I want to hear all kinds of arguments, including the ones that I don't agree with and the ones that I will probably not change my mind on. I would argue that the direction the NYSC opinion section has been taking is not the right choice for it, for what it is. I think that I totally agree with this article I read in Splinter that I'm just going to direct quote it because I can't phrase it better. They're operating in creating cheap outrage and not building community or providing interesting views. And yes, I want to hear what the other arguments are, but I can hear that directly from Breitbart, you know, or Fox yeah. News. Like I do, I think that's like actually the place to get it from or, yeah. or reporting on what's hap- what's coming from those places. Maybe you can explain yeah, yeah. what those publications right. so are. Yeah. Breitbart is, um, how do you explain Breitbart in a non-inflammatory way? It's a far right media publication that publishes a lot of not verified things, inaccurate things about the news. I'm being very fair and diplomatic about it. Um, but it does, it has a big readership and a lot of people believe what it publishes. So I do think it's important to know like what Breitbart says because they're saying it and a lot of people are listening. But I don't think that the New York Times op-ed columnists should be repeating those views coming from themselves in the op-ed section. Do you see that differentiation that I'm making? And I also don't think that the New York Times should tap like a Breitbart person and be like, hey, do you want to contribute to our page? Like, I don't think that's the right way to go either. I actually think, and this is not said in Vox, I don't think, but it's kind of the same idea as what the author eventually drives at is there is so much extremist stuff out there that the thing that would be refreshing and new is to be moderate and to provide like gray ideas 
instead of being, instead of just like tacking to either the left or the right, like to either poles of any issue. Do you subscribe to the belief that the extremities are never actually fully valid? As in like, if you're going to subscribe to one or the other, like that's never really a true reflection of reality. Yeah. Nor is it something that's applicable to the real world. Yeah. And also you're just missing a lot in between. And I feel like that's what the Times has done is that they've just t- look at different issues and say, if this is the most liberal view, like what's a very conservative view we can give or like what's the opposite of this view? But I think there's a lot in between. And again, like I said before, I think it's just that their writers all come from similar backgrounds. So it's hard for them to have a genuine variety in opinions, even if they're trying for it. What I find interesting is that while we we both agree that having difference of opinion is critical for like discourse, how do you present it in a way that acknowledges the editorialization of it, but also makes it so it's like, it's not a, a thing in passing. It's like if you create a section on the New York Times for like controversial thoughts. What does that mean? Right. Is that, is that actually worthwhile to have? Or are you really just like not really doing a service because you're not really giving any arguments a chance to actually be part of the overall sort of landscape? The New York Times ought to try harder at doing is, is what you're suggesting is a way to create conversation I think that what they've done right now is just create controversy and make people unsubscribe. Like people are actually unsubscribing because of the op-eds and they're just sharing it on Twitter because they're angry, you know? And I think like trying inciting that reaction is not a good plan. No, I was going to say, I think it's interesting because I was once at a point in time where like, and I think a lot of people are the same way. It's like, when you come across something you don't like, your immediate reaction is to just go with your your gut, your lizard brain, be like, okay, like remove what I don't like. Mm-hmm. In this case, you know, cut off the New York Times. But if you actually take the time to assess why you don't like it, it actually becomes a little bit more fascinating. Like you, you as a person, I feel you develop more when you can kind of assess why you don't like something yeah. and come to terms with it versus just like immediately react based on what your visceral reaction is. Yeah. So for me, like, I think it's interesting that the New York Times is having sort of a flight of subscribers because they just don't feel like, they don't like what's being said. But I also think they're, I think everyone has different intentions of why they subscribe to the New York Times. But I think a true, oh, this sounds so pretentious, but like, like if you're truly about like actually developing a point of view, then you kind of need to be subjected to the stuff you don't agree with and the stuff you don't like. The thing is that I think part of the reason people are unsubscribing, part of that flight is attributed to the fact that they're not happy with the ideas they disagree with coming from the times, which is what you're saying about like every idea, once you choose it, once you give it air is editorializing. Like again, like about our example being Nazism, like we're not happy with the times showing, giving it any validity is I feel like what subscribers are trying to signal to the times. And it's not that they are ignorant of those ideas and would rather stay in the dark about them, but that they think they still believe that the times carries with it a kind of credibility. And when it gives a platform to those ideas, 
it's elevating them, elevating those ideas more than it should. I mean, that's just, I, I can't speak for everyone who is unsubscribing. How have you observed the Times trajectory since the election, which is, I think, the start mm, of the issues? Honestly, it's a challenge because how do you, how do you get put onto New York Times articles? Like what's your sort of distribution method that, that um, kind of works the best for you? I mean, I follow them on Twitter. People also share their articles in every venue that I'm ever in, including like in private messages. I don't ever, I very rarely visit the homepage, but I have visited specific sections of the Times online. So for me, I check the RSS every day. And then on top of that, like the op-ed section, I'll check. But then that also is, there's a bit of bias because I only click on things that personally stand out to me. I'll check stuff on Nuzzle. Have you heard of Nuzzle? No. So Nuzzle is interesting. I think you'll like it actually. You should check it out. So what Nuzzle does is you submit your follower list. And then within that, it'll notice, hey, you know what? Of the people you follow, um, seven people retweeted or interacted with this story. So you might like it. So it's actually just a way of like social validation. So like, hey, you know what? you'll probably like this. That's one way I get put onto things. It's not always op-ed stuff. It might be just like a general story, but that way and basically RSS, Feedly, those are the two ways. And you know what? Newsletters. So those are the ways I usually come across the New York Times. But I, my overall sentiment, and I think it's about the same for a lot of these publications post-Trump after being elected is like they had this nice uptick in traffic and subscriptions. But I think now it's sort of people are kind of not as invested as they once were. I don't know why exactly, but fatigue. Yeah, maybe it is fatigue. But overall, like I think I think what's important, I think it's more about like how do you educate people on it is like you just really need people to have a game plan and a way to understand and like react appropriately. And not just emotionally to things they don't like. I think that's my my big challenge in life. Yeah. I'm Personally, is just like, how do you have control of your emotions? Like, that's the one thing is like, once you're, when you're susceptible to being emotionally swayed, then like, you can't really think right. analytically right. or objectively. This is actually the perfect time to mention again, that article Eric shared, because some of them are really on point. So one of the problems that create biases in our minds is we have so much information overload that it's easier for our brains to just reinforce the things we know. It's much harder for us to accept new information that doesn't fall in line with the things that we've already assumed. And it's dangerous for us as readers and as writers. And I'm sure like the opinion ed writers are susceptible to this as well as they observe the world. They pick out the facts that fall in line with what they already believe. Yeah. Like re recently I've tried my best to just sort of just be very aware of that. And I think it's like, it's two things. It's like that article that Eric shared is like a, a first step in hopefully recognizing these things when they pop up. But secondly, it's like reading one article is not going to necessarily change the way you think yeah. some people may change, but I think it's just like a step in showcasing that, Hey, this is very important. It's so hard and it's going to get harder. The more, the older you get, the more you articulate your opinions, even just this, these conversations that we have every week, they reinforce things that I 
already believe. And it's tricky to stay the course of being open to changing my mind or even to recognize like when my mind has solidified into taking a certain stance. There are no absolute truths. So it's like, yo, you got to figure this out in a dynamic way because what you come across tomorrow, the day after in three months might be totally different than what you believe today. And I think that's what's interesting because like sometimes your beliefs are also dependent on a time and place. It's like, where, where is society and culture at currently? And what I believe to be true now is because of those factors, but like I can't influence culture and society. So like where we are in, you know, two years time is going to be a very different place. So I think that's one way of looking at it. Um, how it actually plays out in real in the real world, I think is is different. But ultimately, like if I was to have like a bigger takeaway, I'd be like, hey, you know what? It's not bad to be subjected to things that you just don't believe in. I think that it's hard, but you have to also be cognizant of it and want to do it. So it's like, I mean, I've done this before. There's certain people that I'm like, yo, this this doesn't make any sense. Like this person's stupid, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But like you still follow them because it just adds a level of balance. Well, I think not just, well, to push you even harder in that direction is to say, not just exposing yourself to ideas and thoughts you don't believe in, but continuing to allow that maybe there is truth in what they're saying. Not every time you see their name, you're just like, a gut reaction, like, oh my, like, I don't believe in this. Like, oh, another, you know, rubbish thought from this person, right? It's like finding a way to not out of hand dismiss people or publications. Good place to end things off. If you're interested in learning more about Macon and our membership opportunities, which include exclusive content, a members only Slack community and weekly briefings, which this podcast is based off of, head over to Macon.com. There you can also read and listen to more of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. And if you really like this podcast, please do us a favor and share it with your friends. Give us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. And definitely, once again, this is me trying to add something new. You know, you don't actually ever you, tell people to subscribe. You should subscribe to our podcast. Okay, subscribe. Also, we're on Spotify. Yes, we're on Spotify now. Cool. Um, yeah. You have to say your name, buddy. Yeah. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. <laughs> and this is Making It Up. Thanks for that, Trace. Appreciate it. Sometimes I just like, so I don't have the, the document in front it's of me. So I just forget. Funny. I'm going to turn off my recording now. <laughs>